You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, good morning. Oh, great to hear from you guys. Um, So I'm the new guy. Um, I've been down here in Texas and on staff at Stonegate for about a month now. Um, Before that, my wife, Crystal, and our awesome two little girls, Grace and Emma, we lived in Seattle for the last five years, planted a church up there. So we are still getting acclimated and used to Texas, definitely on board with the Cowboys, excited to watch them today. I'm sure that's why some of you are here at the 9 a.m. service. So no shame in that, just admit it. Um, Truth be told, if you're also new, we would love to get to know you a little bit more. So you received a visitor card or there's one underneath your seat when you came in. And if you would just take a few minutes and fill it out later on during the offering, you could just put that in there and we'd love to follow up with you. Uh, One of the great things about Stonegate is what we do on Sundays, but also all the life that happens during the week. And we would love to connect you with that and just find out who you are and how we can minister to you and get connected with you. So let me jump right in today by saying, um, I have found that you come to these places in life, you come to these places in a lot of your relationships where they often get strained. Maybe you've had one of those moments before. Maybe you've had a pivotal moment in a relationship with a family member or a friend or a coworker or someone from long ago when there was great conflict. And you kind of faced this decision. It was this fork in the road moment. Are we going to try to fix this? Are we going to try to restore this? Or are we just going to move past it and forget all about it? And maybe you're there right now. If you're honest, maybe you're walking in. And as I'm saying this, there's someone flashing before your eyes who you find you're in that point of tension with. And what do you do with that conflict? What do you do when sin has ruptured a relationship and there's brokenness there? Do you just chuck it out and say, I'll move on and say it's a lost cause? Or do you lean into that? That's exactly where we find Jesus and Peter today. In the passage we're going to look at, they're facing one of those moments. The relationship has been ruptured, shattered in a way. Peter has betrayed and walked away from Jesus, and now they're at a moment where they're going to have an honest conversation. And it's really interesting how Jesus goes about having the conversation. In fact, he does it by pushing into questions. I love that Jesus leans into questions. In fact, you'll notice a theme that God, all throughout the Old Testament, or Jesus throughout the Gospels, he frequently uses questions Now, is this because God is clueless and he needs more information he's trying to fact find, or is there another intent behind his desire to ask questions? I would say that anytime you see God asking questions, it's not for information, but rather it's for our transformation. It's not for his information, but rather it's for our transformation. These questions, this, this question that we often feel when we're in a relationship and sometimes it's been fractured, those questions that land on us, they're, they're, they're a way sometimes to be less adversarial or less of an accusation, but maybe to get us to think, to pause, to consider, to ponder. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do with Peter this moment. Have you ever thought about the power of a question, though? It's questions all along in your life that have changed your life. What are you going to do with your life? Who are you going to marry? How are you going to spend your money? Who are you going to disciple? Who are you going to love? Questions. And those questions, they come in and they sit on us in a really beautiful way. They begin to expose us. They begin to take what we see of ourselves and who we truly are and push those two together. And we have to become honest. That's exactly what Jesus wants to do with Peter today. 
So if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one right underneath your seat, and I would love for you to be able to see what I'm talking about this morning. It's on page 590 of those Bibles below you. If you have your own Bible, that's great too. We'll be in John 21 as we just read a minute ago. So let's pick it up in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished having breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, how do you love me more than these? So they just got done having breakfast. And the truth is, is if you're going to have one of those conflict conversations, you want to do it on a full stomach, right? You don't want to go into that empty. So they, they load up on breakfast, and it's really fascinating. Jesus, just hours ago, he decided to rise from the dead. And everyone's shocked and blown away and standing in amazement. And they go on a fishing trip, and they sit down, and they eat a meal. You could just imagine over that period of time, the tension's been building. Jesus and Peter, they know this is lingering. They know what happened. And if you don't know what happened, just a couple hours prior, in Jesus' darkest moment, in Jesus' loneliest moment, Peter looks at him, he looks him in the eye, and he walks away. He lets Jesus down. He betrays him. And this is altogether excruciating, not for Jesus, but primarily for Peter. In fact, it tells us that Peter weeps. He weeps with a deep sense of brokenness, almost this identity crisis moment. I'm not the man who I thought I was. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I'm not as capable as I thought I was. And he's coming to have to face himself and to get real. And so Jesus goes for the most important question. He brings Peter to the brink. And he does it in a public way. This is around all of the other disciples. And that's so important for us to know because Jesus is not trying to pay Peter back, but he's trying to bring him back. He's not trying to scold him, but he's trying to enfold him. Peter's betrayal, Peter's moment of identity crisis happened in a very public way. And so what Jesus wants to do is he wants to restore him in a public way. He wants to bring him back into community. He wants him to know your shame, your brokenness, the fact that you've been found out that you're not as great as you thought you were, it doesn't mean you're out. It doesn't mean you have to throw away community. It doesn't mean you have to walk away in shame. Shame often leads us to think that we need to isolate ourselves, that we have been removed from community. But Jesus is saying, come on back. And let's do this. Let's lean into conflict. And I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of us have all sorts of different reactions when we hear about conflict. Most of us don't love it. Most of us don't get excited, wake up in the morning and go like, how much conflict can I have today? Right? It's, it's not one of those conversations. But Jesus loves Peter enough to have the conflict, to not push away from the table. And I don't know about you, but we live in a culture, we live in a time where there's so many options for us. If we get tired of our church, we can just go find another one. If we get tired of our jobs, we can just go find another one. If we get tired of our communities, we can just go find another one. And what this does is it makes us feel like we can just always push away from the table as soon as there's any type of conflict. But Jesus gives us the exact opposite example. But rather when there's a conflict, we're going to lean into it to remain and grace allows us to remain even when it's hard, even when it's awkward, even when it doesn't make sense. It says, let's remain. And Jesus loves Peter enough that he's not going to push away from the table. Now, it's such an interesting phrase there, more than these. What an interesting phrase, right? Commentators will argue about what this really means. One of the options is, do you love me more than these? Maybe pointing to his fishing boats because they just got done fishing. And Peter, by trade, was a fisherman, and so he spent his life fishing. So Jesus could be asking him, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than your status? Do you love me more than your possessions? Do you love me than all the things that you have? But I don't think that's quite what he's asking. 
Second, some commentators will say he's asking, do you love me more than the other disciples? When you look at these other 10 guys, because Judas was gone, when you look at these other 10 guys, do you love me more than you love them? I don't think that's exactly what he's asking. Remember, Jesus is going to the core in order to restore. And he wants to get to the core of how Peter sees himself. He wants Peter to see himself more clearly. So he asks him a question, a question that because of previous circumstances is altogether quite penetrating. He says, do you love me more than the other disciples? Do you love me more than all of the other disciples do? And if you were to look at Peter's actions over the last couple of years as he's followed Jesus, as he come along with Jesus during his years of ministry, you would think that Peter probably had a strong sense of, I love Jesus the most. I'm the one who got out of the boat. I'm the one who was willing to chop off that Roman soldier's ear. I'm the one who was always willing to tell Jesus, I'm going to stay by your side no matter what. In some ways, he thinks he's better than the other disciples. He's got a sense of pride. He's got a sense of thinking that he's superior than the other disciples. Peter has this competitive streak and tendency that he's woven into even what it means to follow Jesus. He's made Christianity, he's made following Jesus almost a sport of sorts. What a deadly place to be. And so here's how Peter engages. And you could just imagine Peter, almost his voice quivering, his voice shaken up. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Interesting. Now, once again, is Jesus trying to humiliate him? Is that why he keeps asking? I mean, clearly Peter's already answered the question. So why does Jesus ask three times? Well, if you remember correctly, Peter denied Jesus three times. There's a symbolism. There's a parallelism that's taking place here that your restoration will look like to the same degree and the depth of reminding you of what your identity is and who you belong to as what your betrayal and your abandonment and your shame is rooted in who you think you are now. And we have to go there, Peter, you have to be reminded. I mean, we talk a ton about preaching the gospel to ourselves. This has become very popular language in some ways, but this is what's taking place here. Jesus is coming right into Peter's identity and trying to remind him who he is, and not just who he is, but whose he is, who he belongs to. And he's driving that identity as deep down as he can, and the only way he can get all the way to the core is to bust up some of the false assumptions and beliefs that Peter has about himself. So when Jesus presses, when Jesus pushes deeply in, when he goes for those places in our lives that feel like, Jesus, don't ask that question. Jesus, I'll talk about all of my life except that last 1%. Just leave it alone. Jesus loves you too much to leave it alone. He loves you too much to leave it alone. And the good thing is, is because he loves you, he'll lean into that. And that's what it means. He's going to the core in order to restore Peter, not to pay him back, but to bring him back. He wants Peter to see, Peter, do you hate your sin enough that you'll finally be honest? That maybe you are not as great as you think you are. That maybe there are some blind spots in how you see yourself. Peter, are you willing to repent 
Peter, do you see repentance as this form of punishment? Are you tired of repentance because you think and somehow it knocks you down the Christian ladder? And somehow you need to be marginalized for a while or you need to be put in time out? And he asks him the question, the question that is in some ways the heart of every question and the question that matters the most. Do you love me? Do you love me? What a profound and powerful question. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm pretty broken and messed up. I would have had a whole bunch of other questions for Peter besides do you love me? Like, hey, Peter, where were you? Peter, why did you leave? Peter, remember when you said you wouldn't walk out and that's exactly what you did. What's up with that? My questions would have been a lot more accusational. But Jesus' question is, do you love me? And this has a way of cutting through everything else. It has a way of getting Peter to see himself for who he honestly is. Peter, you think you're better than others. And that's led you to this prideful delusion of somehow thinking you're superior and that means you're self-deceived. It means you don't see yourself clearly. And here's what do you love me does. Do you love me more than these? And every single one of us, this is where our life plays out. This is the pavement of discipleship. When you walk through your life, when you go to work this week, when you sit down at the Thanksgiving table with friends and family, you're gonna be faced with these moments of do you love me more than your status? Do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than your political ideologies? Do you love me more than your preferences? Do you love me more than what feels comfortable? Or are you willing to follow me even when you got to begin counting the cost? Do you love me more than these? Here's the thing about love. Love makes us do radical, wild things. When you're in love, you, you really count the cost, but the cost always seems small. That's exactly what Jesus is striving at. I, he could focus on so many other different things, but he focuses on Peter's heart. Peter, where are your affections? It's just another way of saying, Peter, what do you worship? You're not primarily just a thinking thing. You're not a brain on a stick, but I want to know where your heart is, what you love the most. And so that's the question. Do you love me? And see, like Peter and, and, and me, I'm right here in this boat. This is my reality. When, when I fail, when I mess up, I mean, when I make a mistake, I often feel like in some ways I have to start my own self-restoration project. I mean, we all do this in different ways. If we're honest, all of us do this in different ways. Some of us, we're going to begin to hide. We're going to think, you know what? I blew it. Maybe you blew it last night too. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. This is exactly where you should be. But maybe you blew it last night. And the temptation is I need to hide. I need to remove myself from community. I need to remove myself from God's presence. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. I'm going to hide. Or some of us, we ignore. We think that our justification or what will make a situation right is just to sweep it under the rug. And some of you, maybe that was your family experience, was when we have conflict, when we have a problem, when there's trouble, when someone messes up, if we just ignore it long enough, it just kind of fades into the background and disappears. Some of us, we really begin to beat ourselves up. We get this narrative going of, I'm really not worth much. I don't really belong. If they really knew who I was, I'm just gonna walk with this shame. I'm not gonna come clean. I'm not gonna be honest. And this is just the way it's going to be. And some of us, we go into the route, and I do this a lot in my life, is I can find great excuses and justifications and rationales 
for why I'm only this much at fault and they're this much at fault. My inner lawyer gets going real quick of why I am right and why they're wrong. Peter could have done that. But Jesus doesn't start a trial. Instead, he starts a restoration. Do you love me more than these? Some of us want to be a slave to our past. We hear condemnation and we think the verdict is in. And this is such a fundamental betraying of the cross, of the resurrection, which is the ultimate verdict in which God says, loved, forgiven, and clean. Made new to walk in righteousness. So here's where this lands. Every single one of us walked in this room this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, you walked into this room not seeing yourself completely clearly. None of us do. In fact, there's things that you do, you wonder, why do you do them? There's ways that you respond and you wonder, why do I respond that way? There's things about me that only I know. There's things about me that other people see that I don't know. And then there's all of me, which only God sees. And that is where we're all at. That's where we're all at. And these parts, these parts of not seeing ourselves clearly, just like Peter, can often lead us to these devastating places where we think we're way more capable than we really are. And we forget, we quickly forget that the ultimate question, the question that Jesus is asking is not how awesome you are and not how capable you are, but he's asking, do you love me? Do you love me? We, we just have this tendency inside of us to argue and run. I think in some ways I've gone too far past the grip of God's grace. And in reality, if you want to know how much God loves you, then look no further than than the cross. That God would come in human flesh, that he would come down to this world, that he'd get off his throne. Do you realize that the God who hangs the moon and the stars in the sky and makes the sun rise every morning and then provides you the very next breath to enter your lungs, he gets off of his throne and he comes to earth and he walks amongst us, not from high places, but from among the crowd. And not only that, does he suffer a humiliating and brutal and awful death. And he's hung on a tree and God says, it is finished. And then, and then, that's not the best part of the story. The best part of the story is that then he resurrects. And Jesus comes back to life. And that's God's final verdict saying, the payment is in and it's sufficient. The check's cleared and you are clean. You have new life. You're loved. And we don't have to walk in shame and fear anymore, but rather we can walk in boldness and confidence and grace, knowing that God has given us a new identity and a new hope and he's restored us. And this is exactly what Jesus is demonstrating with Peter. He's giving him a new identity. He's reminding him of his identity. And here's how this happens practically, okay? Because I really want this to be true for us, not just something that, that's great, sounds awesome on Sunday. But all of us, I mean, this, this is why it's so critical we have to be in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is meant to read us, not just us to read it. The Bible should master us. We're not trying to master it. The Bible should constantly be convicting us. I had a young guy come up to me years ago, and he was just like, hey, you know, there's like these eight things in the Bible that I read I don't like, and can we talk about them? And I was like, sure. And he's like, well, I, I must be reading it wrong because I don't like these things. And I said, no, it actually means you're reading it right. There should be things that you don't like. And when you come across those things, that's a joyous occasion to repent. Because it means there's a moment, there's a sanctifying, holy moment right there where God is growing you and changing you. Where he's giving you the blessed opportunity to repent. And here's the other one. 
those who have frequency and proximity to us. In other words, community. Those that know us. When they come to us, I mean, when you have someone say, hey, I'd like to chat with you about something. Maybe in your home group. Maybe even someone at work. Maybe someone at the Thanksgiving feast, you know, holiday festivities this weekend. When you get confronted with something, what's your initial reaction? Nuh-uh. No way. Well, if they only knew, well, it's mostly their fault. Well, I don't know what they're talking about. Or is it, man, this hurts, but there's something true there. And praise God, because now I get another moment to become more like Jesus. And repentance goes from being a punishment to the place that we drink most deeply of God's grace. And I get conformed more into the image of Jesus. That's exactly what Romans 8 tells us. If you want to know what God's doing in your life, he's using all of your, your life as this laboratory to slowly and progressively and ongoingly mold you and conform you more into the image of Jesus. All of your experiences, all of your moments, all of your conversations, all your doubts, all your frustrations are those experiences. And that's why community is so valuable. I mean, if we're honest, we see ourselves like funhouse mirrors. We have a distorted view of who we are, and we need people around us that show us what we're really like. What I love about this is how patient Jesus is with Peter. I mean, when I think of Peter, I just think of this, this brash, confident guy. You know, almost like, if you guys seen that show, Deadliest Catch? Uh, you know, like just a, a rugged fisherman type guy. That's what I think of when I think of Peter, almost just as he was from Deadliest Catch. And then Peter has this confidence and this boldness at times that also wavers on timidity and fear and cowardice. You know, he's, he'll get out of the boat and walk on water, but he's going to make it about four steps because he's leaning on his own strength and his own confidence before that's exposed. And just a few nights before this very moment, Jesus knelt down to wash Peter's feet. And Peter's response, Peter's response is, wash my whole body. You know, Peter always almost overreacts. He goes too far. That's just what Peter does. I love that. There's a lot of me in that. I just resonate so much with Peter. He's impulsive. He sometimes speaks out of turn. He acts rashly. I, I know none of you can identify with any of Peter's characteristics. Here's the thing about Peter. Peter's a mess. Peter's a mess. Amen. That's it. You, come up here. That's exactly what we're saying next. <laughs> I love that. That's exactly it. We are messes too. We really are. And you want to know something? That's the primary criteria to be a follower of Jesus is to know that you're a mess. I'm a mess. Jesus only takes those who know they're a mess. When Jesus was looking out, when he was scouting for his team of 12, his disciples, he didn't go out and say, you know what? I need to find the valedictorians, the CEOs, the top level people. But rather he went and scraped the bottom barrel of society. He went and found a tax collector. He went and found fishermen, people that no one else would accept for religious training. And he said, come with me. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus says, I want those who are most broken, those who are far off, those who would think they have no hope or no family or no place in God's kingdom. And you have a home. And not only do you have a home, but you're being brought into a feast, a wonderful feast. And not only that, you're not just going to sit in the corner, but you're going to get the preeminent seat in place. That's the message of the kingdom of God. What's great about this too is Jesus interweaves into his response with Peter, not only do you love me, but this reality of if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. You'll tend my flock. You'll feed my sheep. It's interesting, isn't it? Kind of curious why he does that. 
See, some people think when you read this passage, it's primarily a commissioning kind of toward pastoral ministry, that this just applies toward pastors. But what's really interesting about this, D.A. Carson points it out, is this passage here, when describing ministry, is not filled with nouns talking about an office. It's filled with verbs talking about actions. It's talking about a new orientation, one that leads towards service. That because you know you're loved by God, you're now sent out to serve and love those around you. Those that God has strategically and providentially placed near you, you're now sent out to go love, to care for, to connect with. In fact, he makes this point even stronger in the next couple verses in verse 18. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old and you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So Jesus just kind of reaffirmed his identity. He's working on restoring him. And now he's telling Peter, Peter, I'm going to give you almost a, a glimpse, a window into what awaits you. I mean, have you guys ever played that hypothetical game? Maybe you've been in a car too long on a road trip and you kind of talk like, hey, if you knew when you would die and how you would die, would you want to know that? Well, that's not a hypothetical for Peter. He actually gets to know that. He gets to know how he's going to die. Jesus is saying, it's not going to end well for you. And so here's what happens for Peter. We know actually from church history, this is exactly what happens from Peter. Peter gets another 30 years of boldly and, and, and aggressively and passionately proclaiming the gospel. And he plants churches and he serves people and he writes books of the Bible. And then he suffers a gruesome, horrific death. One in which he was crucified, but he wasn't crucified like as Jesus because he saw himself as unfit to be, but rather he was crucified upside down. And he lived with that prophecy. He lived with that reality kind of hanging over his life for the next 30 years. Isn't that interesting that a guy that was so cowardly could all of a sudden face that type of horrific prophecy and still be bold? What changed? What happened? How did Peter go from a coward to courageous? I think it's this moment right here where Jesus says, if you know you're loved and if you love me, then that reality, it changes everything. It transforms everything. And it empowers us, it emboldens us, it transforms us, it shapes us. It says, no matter the cost, the costs have now gotten small, they've gotten blurry, I've forgotten about them, and I'm going to chase Jesus, I'm going to follow after Jesus because I've counted the cost, and everything that stands in the way of me getting more of Jesus, of following Jesus, of serving Jesus, is inconsequential. This is a disciple's life. This is why he ends it and says, follow me. I know you now know what's going to happen to you, but because you know you're loved and you love me, you can follow. See, what Jesus is telling us, and he's pointed this throughout all the, the gospel of John, is that when you know you're loved, when you know that Jesus loves you, the outpour, the fruit, the effect of that is that we begin to love others. And we do it not in just this safe, secure, convenient way, but we do it in a way that often doesn't make sense. We're willing to take risks. We're going to be bold. We're willing to be put to shame. We're willing to be laughed or mocked or scorned or forgotten about because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that the world can throw at us. And once you have that rooted, once you know that's your identity, once you're reminded of that's whose you are, Everything seems smaller in comparison. 
It's like the old hymn, Oh, How I Love Jesus, says that because he first loved me, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. And just a couple nights prior in John 13, as Jesus is washing their feet, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And this is where that obedience, this obedience comes from love. Getting this order right makes all the difference in the world. In fact, I think getting this order wrong leads to most of the confusion people have about Christianity. Do you notice, did Jesus start with, what are all the things you do or what are all the things you know? He didn't start with either one of those. Really interesting, huh? Uh, What about us sometimes, though? What about the culture, the world around us? When they think about a Christian, do they start with all the things that they think a Christian should do? And sometimes we get trapped in that same mindset. You know, if we just find the most moral people, if we just find the people that seem to have their life together, if we just find the people that look the best, that seem the most put together and complete, and we display them, if we lift them up and show them to everyone, then finally everyone will be converted. The moral Olympics, that rat race, so to speak, of just thinking that we need to get all of our, all the, all the things that we're supposed to do lined up. Or he doesn't even start with all the things you know. Now, information's great. Information's fantastic. Learning about your Bible is wonderful. But Peter, here's the truth. He knows way more Bible than I'm ever going to know, than you're ever going to know. I mean, heck, Peter wrote books of the Bible. But Jesus didn't focus, first and foremost, how much do you know? And if we go to knowing and doing before we go to a being that Jesus loves me, then we miss the entire core, the entire heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is not looking for experts. He's just looking for those of us who will be teachable and faithful and those that love Jesus. It's the question. Peter turned, verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciples whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? So this is great. I mean, you can't miss the humor in this, okay? So what's probably going on here is Jesus and Peter have begun to almost take a walk down the beach a little bit. And John, the writer of our gospel, he decides that he's going to listen in on the conversation. He's like, man, if Jesus is talking, I want to hear. So he's kind of following along, maybe a little bit at a distance, just out of earshot. And Peter catches a glimpse of him. He just sees that John's following along. And what does Peter do? Peter does the very thing that's been his problem all along. He's worried about others. What about them? What about John? Okay, you just told me that I'm going to die an awful death. Well, let me, let's talk about John. What's going to happen to him? Peter can't help himself. He's almost addicted to this reality of I'm, I'm, I'm just preoccupied and obsessed with others and what they think of me and what's going to happen to them and comparison. This should be so encouraging because even here, Jesus doesn't give up on him. Jesus just got done having this long conversation with him and Peter does the very same thing again. That should be encouraging to us. Jesus is so patient. He's so kind. And on the heels of our our second chance and our third chance and our fourth chance, Jesus says, you don't need new chances, you need new life. That's the truth of the matter. That's what he's preaching even to Peter in this moment. That's great. That's exactly how Jesus kind of says it in the next verse. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Translation, mind your own business. <laughs> mind your own business. 
Because Peter and John have two completely different callings, don't they? They have two completely different stories. What it looks like to follow Jesus, guess what? It's not the same for everyone. Is it, I, this isn't news, right? It's not a homogenous experience. It's not one lane for everyone. In fact, what it looks like for you to follow Jesus, because it's a relationship, is going to be altogether unique and distinct and subjective to you. It's not cookie cutter because we don't live discipleship in an assembly line. It's not how life works. But here's what happens. All of us get caught up in these places of comparison. And comparison leads to grumbling. And comparison leads to discontentment. And comparison also leads us to get off mission. So here's the mission that God's giving you. God's giving you the mission to love the people that are placed around you, to be faithful with the time, talents, and treasures that you have. Not what someone else has, not what your neighbor has, not what you wish you had, but what you have. And this can be one of those tensions inside churches unless we're just honest about it, okay? If you are going to be a diverse church, racially, socioeconomically, and even just intergenerationally, you're going to have to face the fact that life does not look the same for everyone. Life doesn't look the same for everyone. And one of the biggest lies that's sometimes told in the church is that if you just follow God, he's going to bless you and everyone's going to get the same exact amount of blessings. And that leads to nothing but discontentment, frustration, and despair. Because life doesn't go that way. In fact, where does it go for Peter? It leads to death. And was Peter disobedient? No. Peter planted churches. Peter loved people, but yet he still gets a bloody cross. And what happens with John? John writes books of the Bible. John also helps to plant churches. John also goes on mission trips. But John, for some reason, can't be killed. In fact, they throw him into a pot of boiling oil and he survives. And then, I mean, here's what happens to John. He eventually just gets sent over to an island. And it's like, go over to that island and have some awesome dreams about the future. That's the book of Revelation if you want to read it sometime. It's awesome. But that's what happens for John. Their paths are altogether distinct, unique, and different. If we are going to be a church, a church that reaches our community, our neighborhoods, our families, our workplaces, we've got to come to a place where I say, Jesus, I love you more than having the exact same life, the exact same path as someone else. And if we get caught up in comparison, which leads to grumbling and discontentment and frustration and envy and bitterness, we'll never make it. And the mission won't go forward. And Jesus' encouragement to me, to you, is to run your race. And for me to run my race when I stand before Jesus, that he would say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Not because I lived your life, but because I lived my life. I ran my race. We have to run our race. And we do this together and we do this in community, but we also do it by building each other up. Remember that Jesus is our king. And the king knew exactly what he was doing when he assigned you your path. The king doesn't make mistakes. The king knows exactly where he has you. He knows exactly who you are. And just like Peter had problems facing who he really is, some of us need to also come to a place where we can face who we really are. Lord, these are the gifts you've given me. Lord, this is the life you've given me. Lord, this is what faithfulness looks like for me. Lord, these are the people that you've asked me to go reach. That's his encouragement. 
So what was fascinating about this, and it just speaks so much to how humans are wired. Verse 23 says this, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So we we just get so preoccupied sometimes with the future of what's going to happen next. And sometimes this paralyzes us from acting. We know what the next step of obedience looks like for us. We know what we should probably do tomorrow. We know who we should probably call and see if we can reconcile or restore a relationship with. But we get so paralyzed, unless I know the final outcome, I'm not going to do anything. And what it looked like here was many people, they began to hear that Jesus had said, hey, John, what is it if he stays alive? So they began almost kind of like getting a watch out and putting bets on how long John was going to live. They're almost like, man, Jesus is coming back before John dies. So let's just keep an eye on John. And rumor just began to spread. I mean, just imagine if you have all sorts of people, almost I mean, internet chat rooms and boards and, and newspapers covering, like, when's this guy going to die? When's this guy going to die? That would be a weird pressure even for John. <laughs> but it's just because sometimes we just get so transfixed with the final outcome that we forget to be faithful at the next moment with what's right in front of us. And so this is Jesus' encouragement to us to follow him. Follow him. Every single one of us, you have been placed here on purpose and with a mission. And John closes this way. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the world would not have room for the books that would have been written. John is, John's a good Jewish guy. You've got to understand this. For a Jewish guy to be writing these things, to be writing about Jesus being Lord, is an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. And what John's wanting us to see is that for all of us, as we sit here today and we're spinning on this rock kind of in our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy, and we're saying, what in the world is God like? And where is God? And when my life feels like it's hanging by a thread, where is God? And we're speculating and we're having conversations and we're wondering, all of a sudden God comes down and he reveals himself to us. And we no longer have speculation, but we have revelation. And John testifies to this. He says, I've seen these things with my own eyes. And here's the thing about someone who's seen things with their own eyes. They're not going to die for a lie. And John would have known if these things were not true because he saw them. And Peter saw them. And only someone that believes that something is true is willing to die for it. And that's exactly what Peter would do. They're saying, you can bank on this. You can trust this. We're giving you an accurate testimony. And he ends with what almost seems is this hyperbolic statement. I mean, it almost seems too good to be true. He says, of all the books, he says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What's he getting at there? I mean, it's almost like, really? I mean, Jesus only lived 30-some years. All the books? He's saying is the glory, the majesty, the wonder, the awe that's displayed in the God-man Jesus Christ is enough for all the heavens to marvel at, for all of creation to bow down to. And that you and I, you and I get to know this God. And he wants to know us. And he loves us. And he cares about us. And he's with us. Think about that for a second. 
when you're wondering, do I matter? What's the significance of my life? What am I really worth? You have a God who would come down so you could know him. And he loves you. It's funny, uh, I was thinking this week about Peter. And uh, Peter must have just had a really interesting experience the rest of his life um, because they didn't have iPhones or alarm clocks or things like that to wake them up in the morning. So every morning, he would probably be woken up by hearing a rooster crow. It's really interesting, right? I mean, he hears that rooster crow, and it probably just reminds him, okay, I, I walked away from Jesus. I let him down. I'm not the man I thought I was. I'm not as capable as I thought I was. And that rooster kind of reminds him at the same time of both his brokenness and also the grace of Jesus. What a beautiful way for Peter to start every day of the rest of his life, knowing that he's loved way more than he deserves and way more than he could ever imagine. And he's way more broken than he wants to be honest about. What if we were to be that kind of people, that we would start our days, that we would live our lives, knowing that we're way more broken, we're way more messed up than we would ever imagine. And what we'd be honest about, but yet we were way more loved than we ever knew. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you are our king, and you have been exceptionally kind to us. You have loved us before the foundations of the earth. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. You knew our name long before anyone else did. And when you look on us, no matter where we are this morning, your final verdict is loved. That we get to be your people. And that's not contingent upon us continuing to get it right or our good behavior, our good works, but just your works. That on the cross you would complete all we would ever need to be reconciled and in union with you. And so Jesus, we come this morning humbly just asking for you to make those places and spaces in our hearts and our lives where we need to get honest, where we need to be real, where maybe we've been a bit blind. It's become a barrier of seeing ourselves more clearly and realizing that if, if, we, if we let that wall down, that, that there's not punishment waiting us, but rather grace that you, you want to embrace us, that you want to love us and allow us the, 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 the work of the spirit that we would lean into that very reality. Jesus, thank you so much for these people and this church and your gospel. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.